Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about the intersection of design criticism and practice. In this episode, I have a really nice conversation with the architecture critic Alexandra Lang. Alexandra is currently the critic for Curved and has written for many other publications like the New York Times, the New Yorker, Dwell, and is truly one of my favorite writers. So it was a, such a pleasure to spend some time with her. She wrote a book a couple years ago called Writing About Architecture that has really meant a lot to me about, uh, it's actually about architecture criticism and how to write about the built world. And it really changed how I thought about my own writing and helped me work through how to talk about designed objects. So we talk about that book quite a bit in our conversation. We also go deep on her own writing process and how she worked through a couple of her recent essays. We talk about what she thinks the role of criticism is within the architecture community and how she writes about the built environment for a general audience that might not know anything about architecture. I met Alexandra in a small coffee shop in Brooklyn this past summer where we recorded this so you can hear other customers and the espresso machine in the background. But the conversation was so illuminating to me that I just had to share it anyway. You'll hear it actually get quieter about halfway through because we stayed so long that the shop had actually closed and they let us stay so we could finish our conversation. Um, so, you know, as you can tell, this was really fun and enjoyable for me. And I think a really interesting look into how a critic thinks about their work. So again, I apologize for the background noise, but I think you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So here is my interview with the architecture critic, Alexandra Lang. I, I, I guess I want to start with kind of like a couple background questions okay, sure. that we, we talked about a little bit before, but I don't um, fully know kind of like how you got into this and how what kind of like... How does one become an architecture critic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you never practiced architecture. No. Okay, so right. <laughs> here's the story. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so I went to Yale as an undergrad and I was a literature major and an architecture major. I was a literature major because I've always loved 19th century British novels, and I was an architecture major because I wanted to be an architect. But then when I got to Yale, um, I found out that the Yale Daily News was kind of a big deal college paper, and being kind of a competitive person, I thought, oh, I should do the Yale Daily News also. So, and it turned out my one of my freshman year roommates also wanted to do the Yale Daily News, so we we did it together. She's still one of my best friends. So, um, so basically in college, I was already kind of interested in literature and architecture and journalism and doing all of that. And coming out of college. Um, the, the Yale degree is a BA in architecture, so I knew if I wanted to be an architect, I was going to have to go back and get an MRC. But I thought, oh, why don't I take a few years off and move to New York and you know work in um, journalism and then go back to architecture school. So I had been lucky enough to get an internship at Time Magazine after my junior year of college. And at that oh, wow. time, yes. <laughs> was super lucky. Um, at that time, Kurt Anderson was running the front of the book at Time Magazine, and I was working for him. I mean, I basically only saw him at daily story meetings, yeah. but he did know who I was. Um, wow. So when I was a senior, and you're a junior in college. college yeah. yeah. Wow. So when I was a senior in college, 
he became the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, which was a huge deal at the time. And so I wrote him a letter and was like, hi, remember me from this summer. I see you're the editor of New York Magazine. Are you hiring any editorial assistants? And he wrote back and was like, sure, I can hire you for $21,000 a year as an editorial assistant. Wow. So yeah. Um, so that's what I did. I moved to an apartment in Park Slope and I started at New York Magazine and I was literally answering the phones at New York Magazine. Kurt Anderson's office. Yeah. yeah. So when, and, and wait, this was and right after you graduated This is in 1994. And so you're fresh out of college. Yes. So when did you... <laughs> and it was, I mean, I will just say it was completely ridiculous for me to be working at New York Magazine because I'd never worked in New York and I just, I didn't know <laughs> right, right. the least thing about New York in any kind of um, cultural sense. Like, yeah. people would go to the Hamptons for the weekend and it took me a while oh, to right. figure out like what, what the Hamptons were and like what was that all about. So I was really very very naive <laughs> so so did you did you graduate with a double major yes, in literature and architecture yes i did when did those when and how did those kind of start to intersect or let me actually like backtrack yeah. when you were when you were doing both of them yeah and then right out of school in your editorial assistant did you see those as like two separate things no, and then when did they they were connect? they were always a bit connected. I mean, I I have and still have like a real love of literature. So, yeah. I mean, there was definitely the kind of dreamy reading side for me, but I already understood when I was in college um, kind of about journalism and nonfiction as an art form. I mean, yeah. I, I read a book by Ada Louise Huxtable in high school, so I knew that architecture oh. critics existed already yeah. in high school. And the Yale um, architecture program actually has really good courses in history of in theory of architecture. And I was also um, lucky enough to be in Vincent Scully's famous lecture on modern architecture. So, oh, wow. I mean, and I think this is why so many architecture critics come out of Yale. You, you just get seeped in this idea of language as wrapped up in architecture. So it was very clear to me even coming out of college that that you know writing about architecture in this descriptive way was something that you could do and was something worth doing so yeah so they were connected um, yeah they were really connected for me so and even actually, if you were oh, oh. oh I was just gonna say because it's sort of relevant. I took, um, there's a, the John McPhee of Yale is this guy named Fred Streeby, who I think actually studied with John McPhee, and he teaches this famous nonfiction writing class. So I took that class in college, and I wrote a story about why the Yale Architecture School was so terrible at that time. So really, wow. I was like already on the okay. case. So even, it's interesting that even like, while you're in school and maybe you weren't necessarily writing about architecture all the time, you saw these things as, you saw language and writing as a way to talk about architecture. Yeah. You saw them as very symbiotic, very yeah. early on. Yeah, I did. And, but I also think like that's part of the, um, even the art history classes you take yeah. in college. I took this amazing, you know, modern art history lecture right. class with a woman named Ann Gibson who is pretty well known 
and and we had to write all these papers about paintings for that class and that's you know yeah. that's art criticism that's architecture criticism i actually feel like you almost do more of that in college than you do later right so so yeah i did i did see them as intertwined but it's true when i moved to new york i saw myself as taking a break and doing journalism for a couple of years before I was going to go back to architecture school and be an architect. Yeah. I mean, that was my trajectory at the time. I have, I have a theory <laughs> as, as someone who's not related to architecture at all. I wanted to be an architect when I was in middle school, actually, mm -hmm. before I... Actually, this is a side note that I'll probably cut out, but it's <laughs> relevant. My friend growing up when we were like eighth grade or so we both wanted to be architects the kid who lived across the street from me and we started an architecture firm uh -huh. um, did you have cards we had cards and we called it uh, J.A. Architecture. His name was Andy. Okay. And we started designing business cards and letterhead, and we designed like a folder that had all of our contracts and stuff. And all we did was redesign all of our friends' bedrooms. Like it was more interior design than yeah. architecture, but we loved it. Wait, did you actually rearrange their furniture? Yeah, and painted their walls. Wait, I love this. This yeah. is awesome. And do you and have any photos of this? I, I can find some like that. Um, and we like documented everything and we built a website for it where we posted like before and after pictures. And as we were doing this, I realized that I enjoyed designing the logo for the our company more than redesigning my friend's rooms. Yeah. And I enjoyed making the website more than the actual work. And that's how I kind yeah. of discovered graphic design yeah. through my 13-year-old yeah. architecture business. Well, that sounds great. I actually built my first architectural model when I was 12 or 13, because I took um, a colleague of my mother's at NC State taught like a kind of um, extension class for kids on architecture. Oh, yeah. um, Steve Gaddis, a great guy. And so I took that class when I was 12, and I have That's photos amazing. of this architectural model that I built when I was 12. Actually, I've been meaning to post them on Instagram because it's funny. I was very influenced by Richard Meyer. So it's basically <laughs> it's basically like a Richard Meyer house, but built out of red cardboard and clay. Did you know the name Richard Meyer you know, as I, a 12-year-old? I did because, I think because my mother owned the Richard Meyer monograph because it was designed by Massimo Vignelli. It's really famous monograph book design. It's all Bodoni. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 black yeah, and yeah, white. Yeah, yeah. I know anyway, it's, it's like hilarious. classic Vignelli. So I had seen that book and I, I the, um, the house he did, uh, there's a house he did in Michigan that was like my dream house for many, many years. Yes. That was like my first architecture that's love. That's amazing. I love that. Um, that's so funny. Yeah. So that's my connection to architecture okay. was, was as a 13-year-old. But my theory, I have this theory that I've been thinking about a lot. And I have no proof of it at all, and it's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to talk to you as someone who's kind of more in the architecture world. Yeah. Um, as a graphic designer, I always read. I read a lot of architecture. I read a lot about architecture. I read a lot of architecture criticism, and I've always been jealous of the like dialogue <laughs> from an outsider that seems like a lot of dialogue, and even practicing architects tend to seem to be very theoretical and are putting out ideas and points of view that I felt like graphic design never has or never had and doesn't really have. Yeah. 
And I had this theory that, and this is where I'm gonna show my ignorance for architecture, but for a long time, being an architect meant building buildings. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot harder to do than a lot of graphic design work. And it takes longer and there's all the, and so to kind of support that, there's the thinking and writing and things like that. And even like when you said that you were gonna, you waited to go back to school. Like I know a couple people who studied architecture and then had this big debate of what they wanted. Do they wanna be a practicing architect? Do they wanna kind of go into something else? And I'm wondering, I've always thought maybe that has something to do with this kind of critical dialogue that seems to always um, be happening in the profession. Yeah, you know, I don't, I think that's true of a slice. I mean, I think, yes, I understand why um, graphic design might, well, I shouldn't say be jealous of, but something in that, in that yeah. general scheme, be jealous of architecture because there is just a longer history of writing and then a yeah. longer history of theory and then even a lot, a short but still longer history of criticism in architecture because it's just um, it's right. just a bigger field and a longer lived yeah. field as yeah. you know as a professional discipline. I do think though that um, the amount of theory and writing that practicing architects do really waxes and wanes with the economy. So oh, you yeah. may partially have that impression of architects as being intellectuals because of the enormous amount of history uh, and theory that happened during the 70s and 80s when nobody was building it. Right, right. And that was actually oh, that's that was actually a particular you know, time uh, in architecture that I don't think is sort of you know correlated over all of architecture even or all of 20th yeah. century architecture. Um, because you know, pa paper architecture and theory do tend to crop up more when people, you know, aren't building their projects, and there's this kind of right. like pent-up right. creative imagination. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I also think there are a tremendous number of architects that are not only not interested in theory, like probably don't even look at the yeah. architecture right. magazines. And I mean, there's there's so many like layers and types of architecture in the country that don't even get yeah. addressed in any right. way and it always makes me irritated when people say architects blah 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 because I'm like right. who are yeah. you talking yeah. about I mean even so my husband um, is a solo practitioner who does residential architecture and like you know his world is so different from the world of most of these right. sort of design famous architects I interview and I feel right. like it's really important that I have that I know about both of yeah. these they're not even two sides there are many more sides but at least I know about a couple of sides right. to the profession that are happening at the same time right. and you know yeah and that's just how it is yeah, I, it's yeah. So, that's so obvious too I was just having this conversation with someone about graphic design there's not one type of graphic designer and there's not one type of work or school of thought right and i just made that same mistake of like oversimplifying it for yeah. architects but yeah you're exactly yeah. right but um, i do feel like i don't know what the actual numbers are but i do feel like graphic design is a much smaller world in the yeah. sense that having you know having been associated with design observer and knowing a few yeah. key people like i know a lot of people in graphic design and even though 
the majority of my work is about architecture. I still would never say, like, I know a lot of people in architecture. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, architecture just feels more vast. Yeah, I, I feel like the thing that I like, well, I guess we can talk about this now. Is yeah. Your book writing about architecture was, like, I, I loved it and was like very like influential and changing the way I thought because I was I think I read it as I was applying to grad schools or as I was thinking that I wanted to go to grad school and kind of make this shift into a more academic kind of critical side of design and reading that was just so it was just so kind of like instructional of I think the way you talked about how to look at a building or what the the critics' point of view at the building, what were they after, um, was something that, when I read it, it, seemed so obvious, but I had never thought of it before, and it started, has really changed the way I read criticism of, of any type. Um, and, like, what I love that you kind of illuminate is, is the way critics will kind of maybe use the building as a starting point to talk about other things, talk about the changing landscape, talk about like the how that affects the economics or yeah. the politics around it. Um, and and I, I tend to think that like graphic design has that same type of opportunity. Like it is also very tied to the to market yeah. and economics and politics. And in my view, like that's not like graphic design is still graphic design writing often is very surface level um and so i don't know if there was actually a question there but like how, how do you see yeah. what do you see your role when you when you're writing do you have like a thing that you're after or is it kind of case by case yeah well it's funny i i've actually i mean i do i feel like like in a broad sense there's something that I'm after I mean I do feel like criticism is a calling and I am trying to make this city or other cities better like yeah. that you know I'm I'm not doing criticism for my ego or you know that's only a small percentage of it um you know I do feel like talking about things is the only way to improve them and I do feel like Lots of people don't see the things that I see, and so I'm I'm trying to communicate what I see and hope that that's yeah. convincing through my writing. Um, so yeah, and I think, well, God, I mean, I think that should be the goal of a lot of criticism. In terms of, and and I've had this conversation with people because I don't I don't look back that much on my work. Like I find I find reading my own writing like nails on the chalkboard. Like I feel like. If you ask me a really specific question about my book, I it, it's all a blank to me yeah, now. Yeah. It's like it's rearview mirror. Um, so it's like I hope that I am intellectually consistent across the you know literally hundreds of things that I've written. Right. But I don't know for sure because I can't look back. And this is actually why I think it's really important and I hope like one day there can be an edited collection of things that I've written because I'd love to kind of put those themes back together or work with an editor who could, you know, right. like, point out some of those themes to me because I, I, I think, you know, as a person who thinks hard, I am probably intellectually consistent but I may not see it all because I don't look back yeah. and so the I really think if you're like a working critic who writes a lot you kind of have to 
hope that an ethos is kind of, in, in a way, like rises from right. your work, even if piece by piece you're not, I don't think you should always be hammering that home. I mean, I'm sure I have pieces that are more political, less political, more economically focused, less economically right. focused. I mean, I do think something that's come out for me really strongly just recently is kind of um, this sense of the public good and yeah. not letting yeah. um, private money I was say what say, is for the public good. I feel like good. some of your recent yeah. ones, that seems to be a theme. Well, I just, and you know, and this is, and it is a theme because neoliberalism is yeah. ascendant. I mean, I only understood what neoliberalism was like 18 months ago when I finished out my I time still, it's just at like Harvard. Fuzzy but basically it's, about, <laughs> basically it's about people saying like, oh, this billionaire wants to build a public plaza and he says it'll be great. Well, who are we to object? Like, and I just oh, right. think that is no way to build a city. I am just flabbergasted that, oh, interesting. that, yeah. that politicians that newspapers like the New York Times, et cetera, like do not have more pushback around it. So yeah. yes, the, for me, but but the thing is that some of these themes for critics come out of, you know, world events. Yeah. It's like, I didn't, I'm not looking for that. It's just happening and I object, so. Who, <laughs> do, you, do you have an audience in your head when you're writing or like who, and I guess this depends on what publication yeah. you're writing for and where it's going to live. But what's that audience yeah. look like? I, you know, I feel like I should have a better audience in my head. I, I really, I try very hard. I, I think that I don't have a specific audience in my head. I know that I'm trying hard to be very straightforward and descriptive and engaging. I think my language is pretty casual, which I'm hoping means you know more people feel like, oh, okay, this is gonna be fun. But in terms of, and I feel like for better or for worse with most architecture writing, you have to have an audience that already has some amount of buy-in. Now, I mean, that's a separate issue that is somewhat depressing to me but so I guess I just feel like I'm trying to explain my point of view on something as clearly yeah. as possible but I don't think really hard I think I write pretty much the same way all the time I mean I would say the piece that I've written recently where I struggled more with the audience was um, writing the big story for the New Yorker about West oh. 8 and Governor's yeah. Island yeah. because Which that's obviously great, oh thanks well um, so yeah so that one I felt like it was my first story for the magazine so I was super nervous anyway but I really had to think about an audience that didn't know anything and wouldn't necessarily even yeah. want to read this right. article right so I know um, you know, at one point I had to give a whole history of landscape architecture in like two sentences, which makes me feel really weird, but right. you just have to do it. And in general, I was just trying to keep it super light and fun, because I'm like, yeah. nobody's ever going to read this article if they don't think it's fun. Yeah. Did you see that? I, I, I actually love that you brought that article up, because this okay. leads into some of my other questions okay. I had. Do you think that that, do you view that piece as a work of criticism? Not really, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> how, and I don't yeah. mean to like put false like oh. borders up of what it is, but like how, how would you describe that? Like what is that piece? I mean, that is a classic magazine profile. Okay. Um, I am happy though, I, and this, so since 
I've been mainly doing criticism for a while. It's now much more difficult for me to do pieces when I'm basically supposed to be a re- non-fiction yeah, a journalist. journalist. Yeah. Yes. So I, that makes me feel weird. So like, it is. I feel like I'm. Ha- I have a little bit of a split consciousness. Like I know that I am occasionally considered controversial, but they don't know that. Right. So what does that mean? So, so it was difficult for me to figure out. You know, I wouldn't have, I proposed the piece myself, so it was something that I believed in in a yeah. project that I would have written a really positive, critical piece about. Oh, right. So Did, and you pitched it to I the pitched New it to them, okay. yeah. I mean, I initially we were talking and to my editor, there were a lot of coffees, and, um, and I basically said that I thought the biggest news in architecture right now was landscape architecture. And he kind of nodded and was like, okay, that's interesting. So he's like, so who would you profile to get that idea across? And I'm like, well, I love Governor's Island, and I think Adrian Hoyza is really interesting, mostly because I don't, I'm not always sure that I love his work. And I think, you yeah, know, like yeah. that lack of sureness, I think, indicates that he's trying to do something that's maybe a little bit more extreme or more, uh, I don't know, idiosyncratic than some right. other landscape architects that are a little easier to take. So anyway, so that's the background. But then the whole time I was writing it, I did have a lot of um, interior conflict, just even about the whole profile form, because again, I don't think my editors at The New Yorker realized that architecture has been kind of going through this crisis of confidence where we're starting to talk about women in architecture, we're starting to talk about collaboration, we're starting to talk about credits, and that the idea of the male solo genius is in fact embattled for good reason. And so then to be writing an article that in a way is falling into that old pattern was also like caused me a lot of internal conflict. Now I think in the end, though I didn't realize it. I, I mean, this is sort of, judging from the reaction on social media and the way other people have talked about it, I think that I actually managed in a way to make it a profile about somebody who I think is really a terrific landscape architect without making it all about him. Like, I do think that people understood that it was about him and his practice, but it was also about the way parks are transforming cities, and that's a bigger idea and a critical idea that you know I support. Right. So that made me happy. That I, it's like I wouldn't yeah. say despite myself, but I wasn't sure that would come across, and then it actually seems to have. So that made me happy. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. Yeah, I, I mean I don't. I want I want to come back to this, but I want mm-hmm. I have a little bit of a like I I read. And I, I, don't, I don't want this to sound like a value judgment or anything, but I read um, Paul Goldberger's Frank Gehry biography mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year. And it was interesting because I didn't know a lot of Gary's origins. And so I enjoyed that, but I also, it felt like it played into a lot of these things you were talking about where it kind of almost like deitized him. Yeah. Um, and like he could do no wrong. And I felt just very conflicted reading it sometimes because I wanted some, some of Paul's like opinion, and I felt like that was kind of like all removed. And so it's interesting to hear that even in like a, you know, your profile for the New Yorker, 
that balance and you know kind of comes into play and yeah and who's reading it and yeah. are they going to be aware of these issues that are being talked about in the architecture community and is it worth I don't know. That's not a question. It's just like yeah, a, yeah. No, no. I think that's really interesting, especially because um, I'm current. I also read Paul Goldberger's biography, and I'm currently reading a new biography of Jane Jacobs. And the other oh, yeah. night on Twitter, in again one of my spontaneous like thinking out loud things, I started tweeting about how I hate that all biographies. Yeah. And, and this was just what did I read? Oh, I read this. I read a biography of Isamu Noguchi that came out last year. Um, and then I read the Gary biography, and now I'm right. reading the yeah. Jane Jacobs biography. And all of them start, well, the Jane Jacobs biography starts with literally three chapters on kind of her background and family and other things. And I think that the Gary biography also starts mm-hmm. with multiple yeah. chapters yeah. on that. And I am really just not into that at all. Like, if, if I were writing a biography, which yeah. for the reasons that I think I've just explained, I am right. not planning to do anytime right. yeah. soon because I don't think I have the right personality for it. I would just like cut that, like, you know, kind yeah, of like yeah. slash and burn. Like maybe it'll come in later. Yeah. Like, you know, somebody wrote to me back on Twitter. I felt like I had a good discussion with people about biographies. Like, oh, I think it was Carolina Miranda said that someone told her that the advice was to start when the person comes to New York. And I would have totally been happy for the Jane Jacobs biography to start when Jane Jacobs moved to New York. I would have been totally happy for the Frank Gehry biography to start when he started architecture school at, I think it was USC. Yeah. I just, that front chunk, Right. it feels so beautiful. And I feel like, I mean, even with like the little bit of my biography that I've been talking about here, I feel like I can make it sound like this totally smooth right, narrative right. where it was all foreordained. Oh, yeah. And like in my experiencing of it, it was not like that at all. But I just, um, yeah. I think I feel like a critical essay may include some biographical elements is kind of a more condensed and focused way to take on a person in their career, and that feels much more natural to me than a biography that sort of has to check all Mm -hmm. these boxes. So I don't think I'll ever be writing a biography, but, you know, never say never. Um, That, I think the fact that, that your profile, though, was in The New Yorker brings up something that I think about a lot is that architecture critics have long had posts at major publications yeah um and i don't i don't really know if there's a question yeah in that but that's something that's always been interesting to me and and i think again from like my outsider point of view it comes back to kind of what you wrote about in writing about architecture is that it's the kind of the best of the best use the building to kind of like talk about right yeah other things that any person who has no interest in architecture even you know, is aware of that, they, that, it gives them an entry point because there's something that's yeah. you know, relevant to them or, or yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting topic. Um, okay, so... And I know that yeah. that's changing Yeah, no, I was going to say, number, number yeah. one, yeah. that era <laughs> is over. I think yeah. that era I, is yeah. over. I mean, sad to say, like, I, I think when I got into this business I thought the era would continue and eventually I would have one of those jobs 
I mean, that was my dream. Yeah. Um, about five years ago, I had to kind of <laughs> sit myself down and have a hard conversation and say, like, I don't think you should say that's your dream anymore because that dream just yeah, feels like I, that's a right. dream that there's going to, like, well, it's like the disappearing sidewalk. Then yeah. you, it just, yeah. like, yeah, evaporated yeah, yeah. from in front of me. So what can I do... And it was also saying, okay, so that's not the dream. You're not climbing a ladder. Like, I don't, I don't know what's ahead. So I've just got to do what I can do now with the resources yeah, yeah. at my disposal. And that's really, like, this is the pep talk I keep giving myself. Like, that's what I've tried to do. So, I mean, I do think it was and is a great thing for there to be, you know, like a city and a newspaper and a critic. Because yeah. those critics are able to follow things for much longer. I think the platform of the newspaper is really important because A, people will read building reviews of the newspaper. I think there's an audience, that there's a sort of assumption when something's in the newspaper that it is interesting to a wide audience. Right. Like, like I think sometimes um, the idea of audience is not just how you write, but where you're writing. Yeah, yeah. And so, and that's the thing that I feel like I don't have that much control over. Like, I, because for example, another thing that I was talking about on Twitter is that, so I'm now the architecture critic for Curbed. The Curbed readers don't like it when I do a building review. Like a, a, I would say a straight up building review. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, I think, so I feel like this piece of writing that you know I'm reasonably good at, that if I worked for a newspaper would be fine and people would read, if yeah. not fine because I'm writing for a website. And so like that's, that's a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's probably good because it challenges me to figure out, well, what's the way I could write about this? I mean, it, sometimes it's harder because it's like, okay, I can't write about this one building that I can just go to and then come home and say what I think. Like, that's actually right. easy for me. I have to go to like three buildings and cogitate and like write some yeah. like whole thing about their the architect's whole career and it's more difficult, but that is what people will actually read. That's interesting. Um, so, okay. I mean, there are, good, there are pluses and minuses. Um, but so, I, like, I, I still believe in that old model, I just think it's disappearing. Um, you know, occasionally I've done a count of how many, you know, architecture critics there were that have salary jobs and I think it's best you know to, to do newspapers and then like the few magazines like New York Magazine with Justin Davidson yeah. who have like a salary oh, yeah. critic but of course he's half classical music half architecture so anyway but, yeah. but those numbers are shrinking like actually right just recently you know the Boston Globe cut its funding for its arts pages and I've been trying to figure out what that means for Bob Campbell who's mm. a super respected architecture critic who was a contract yeah. employee but is he not going to write for the Boston Globe anymore like that actually right. means that like another architecture critic has been exed from that column so. yeah I don't know how to phrase this it, I, like it's it's sad to me like in, in your book you introduced me to um, a shop um, and the Bill Bow piece, which just like completely like blew me away, and I bought, I went out and bought his like selected essays, like oh, the yeah. big yeah, yeah. book. And that's like, very fun. If I like can't fall asleep or something, <laughs> like that's the book that I pick up and I'll just read one. And like knowing that they were in the New York Times, it's just like this. Yeah. Can this even happen? That's anymore? so funny because the book for me that was like that is um, 
Exquisite Corpse, which is the collection of Michael Sorkin's Village oh, yeah. Voice columns. Yeah. Do you have that? I've read pieces, okay. I don't own anyway, it. Anyway, it's, it's his columns from the 80s, and that, to me, was this kind of like, oh my god, criticism can be like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I got to Mush, but I read Mushamp more in real time, whereas right. like, I needed a collection of those things. Um, so, yeah, and it's funny, there's a lot of nostalgia, you know, in real time, people thought that Herbert Mushamp was kind of crazy. Well, he yeah. became increasingly crazy, and there was a lot of pushback about his language and, like, the floridness of it all. But now, in retrospect, that feels like a golden age, because I just feel like, and I'm not painting with a, I don't want to criticize everyone, but I do think there's kind of less experimentation, less rope. I mean, and, you know, you could point to me, like, I don't write like that. That's, but yeah. I mean, as a critic, you really have to write from your own personality. And yeah. my own personality <laughs> right. is actually super direct and probably not that poetic. So yeah. I admire yeah. that, but that's not me. So I couldn't do that. I'd, yeah. I'd love to see somebody that it was organic to write like that. Yeah. But maybe we're just not in an age that would want that anyway. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think about that. I, like, and I, I obviously read a lot of him through the lens of what would this look like in graphic design? It's like, mm. what if, like, there are so many things from, like, because now there's, like, the hot take for, like, the logo redesign that suddenly <laughs> yes. everybody... I follow all this, yes. Everyone has an opinion on yes. that all of a sudden. And it's just, like, quick. And it's, like, good, bad, you know, yeah. yes, no. And I'm actually not 100% opposed to the hot take on yeah. logos. <laughs> I will well, say. Why, why not? You know, because, like... Logos are, I mean, I know I know the graphic yeah. designers always say the logo is part of this whole system and you have to understand the system and you have to see yeah. it in the yeah. environment yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And I get that, like I understand. But a logo is also supposed to be seen in a yeah, flash. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I don't think that those instantaneous reactions should all be discounted. Right, I agree, <laughs> I, I will. So I'm not 100% with, with Michael Beirut on that one, though yeah. I know why he takes the position yeah. that he does. <laughs> and it, it, I, I actually see your point, and I do think that there is, and it's so easy. Like it's so also, easy. Also, it's to super like, fun. I love to yeah. get involved. What was it? I can't remember. Oh, the well, Met. the Met. The yeah. Met one was big. The Met one was big, and I do think it looks wobbly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, weird. The and Instagram wobbly. icon was the other recent one. Oh yeah, um, I don't care so much about that. I mean, it's funny, yeah. I think it's also, you know, a person is more and less into, um, emotionally invested yeah. in certain logos than they are in others. Yeah. I mean, I am, and this is partially my own kind of nostalgia for the 60s, like I will defend every one of Paul Rand's right. logos yeah. to the death. Like, yeah. I love those. I mean, my dissertation was about 1950s oh, and right, 60s right. architecture and design, so, I just like that's my period yeah <laughs> and you shouldn't mess with us UPS yeah. foolish so anyway um, so yes I do well I see some value in that and I actually just find it to be super fun like you know what it's our form of celebrity gossip and just yeah. like don't rain on our parade yeah <laughs> I, 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 I agree with that I just want to see and maybe a logo isn't the right thing for that maybe yeah. it's like I, I don't know an advertising campaign yeah. or something. Or you know what? You know what would be interesting? 
to talk about magazines. For yeah. example, there was just the um, the issue of the New York Times magazine where they yeah. ran it um, the uh, other way. Yeah. I don't know. Vertical I don't know if you would say vertical or horizontal. Yeah. The the. I know anyway, yeah. they tur- it was on tall buildings, mm-hmm. and I just I had a lot of issues with it, and I felt like nobody. That would have been a perfect thing for you graphic design geeks, and I say that with love, to like get all up in arms about. And and I didn't read any specific critiques of it um, from like a design and photography point of view. And like that seems like a worthy object to Mm -hmm. talk about. Yeah. Um, I mean, there you know there are journalism critiques of it too, but but nobody really did that. I mean, that seems like something that a person could take on. Yeah, and and like. And that's like exactly a thing in like a, a Mouchamp's style where kind of bringing in all these kind of references and cultural things and kind of weaving you through and seems like something that A, would be interesting to graphic designers, mm-hmm. but then yeah. also I think is a way to kind of let the general public or the audience of these things think about this stuff. Yeah. Um, in an accessible yeah. way, instead of talking about like the, like the, to just to keep talking about logo designs, but like when a logo designs review is all like about the kerning or whether like the sizing, okay. it's like fine, but like those are to me are just boring. Yeah, well I don't read that part because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I know the, I know a teeny yeah. bit about um, typefaces, but yeah. in fact, just last week I asked Twitter to ID a typeface for oh, me, yeah. and again. Well, I mean, this is why I actually love social media, because I'm willing to show my ignorance, but then somebody always knows the answer, and it tends to lead to an interesting discussion of, you know, this, um, it's Robert Harling, who I had never heard of before, but it turns out he also designed Playbill, which is a favorite um, sort of wood type style um, typeface that I've always liked and actually my son's name he has book plates that are set in playbill because his name just looks really good in that and I'm like okay so I already like Robert Harling and then it turned out he did the um, type they use for the Four Seasons restaurant and it's like oh well this is all interesting and of course you know it it was designed um, like in the 30s or 40s so those are the typefaces that the 50s and 60s designers tended to use because they were new, right, they right, were fresh. Right, right. So yeah. anyway, so there's this whole interesting thing opened up by yeah. just asking this question that, and I couldn't, I mean, I had already, I always Google first. Yeah. Like, I had already asked yeah. Google and Google came up with nothing, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example and I don't, I don't mean to keep like making this about my frustration and the oh. lack of discourse, but like, I think like I, when the Helvetica film came out, yeah. I showed it to my dad, mm-hmm. who has no design background yeah. at all, no, didn't know any fonts from the yeah. other, he was riveted, like, so into yeah. it, and, like, the next day, he, he like, called me, uh, he was at work, and he was like, do you have Helvetica on your computer, can you, like, <laughs> send it to me, because, like, I want, I want to use so it cute. on our, yeah. our letterhead, um, and it's just, like, that kind of like accessibility I just think is interesting yeah and also lacking yeah well that that goes 
to your idea that video might be yeah. the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I really admire Helvetica. I've had some issues with subsequent movies that Gary Husford's done on more complex subjects. I'm actually really excited. I think the Dieter Rams one will be good because it's a little more focused. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that was a tremendous success story for somebody yeah. understanding like how ubiquitous a project would be. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a reason, like, as I mentioned before, I don't really listen to podcasts, but I think that that's a reason um, people like 99% was, Invisible so much. I was just so going to bring that up. Though I feel like that, I feel like they're really careful, like, not to talk about things as design. Like, I feel like it's stepped back, like, yeah. one step yeah. from design and kind of um, that, and I don't know, that kind of authorship, which probably makes it more accessible, but makes it sometimes frustrating to me, um, like, at a discourse level. Yeah, I no, I agree. And I, that's, that's one that I look at a lot because I do feel like when it started, it was, it, was more focused and had yeah. kind of level, a certain level that it was at, and it keeps kind of broadening. Yeah. Um, but like people are going into it and liking it, so I'm very just kind of curious yeah. by that. I also struggle, so I have a PhD in architecture history, and I wrote my dissertation about architecture design, graphic design, landscape yeah. design, like all the designs mixed up together, which is really like kind of where my head is, because I prefer to think about things as a system. Yeah. Um, so I get frustrated with the way history is is often presented as a kind of wow moment, both yeah. in podcasts mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. on the internet. Yeah. And things that essentially historians have known for years are suddenly presented as some sort of scandal. And I yep. just, I find that I struggle with that because I realize how snotty I sound when I say that, but on the other hand, to reduce these things so this kind of, uh -huh. like nobody's ever heard this before, and I'm like, well, you know, I actually know the book in the library that you probably read that in, and now you're presenting this as some sort of new information. Um, actually, the New York Times Magazine just used to have that who made that column for a while. That It was like about, it was basically, I, I used to joke to people. It was basically like design history exists. So somebody oh, invented oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the water pistol. Somebody right. invented, um, I don't know, the flip flop. And to yeah. me, that's sort of like no duh. Like tell me something interesting about it. Be besides right. this like potted, like overly cheerful history of how it was invented and it yeah. reused yeah. some existing industrial product. But people liked it. I don't know. I mean, and this is the conflict that I get into where I'm like, uh -huh. well, people like that and they're learning about design, yep. but I think it's a little bit dumb. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> even feel we're starting to get a little short on time. Okay. Um, so I have a couple things oh, that I want to like. Oh, sorry. That's fine. Uh, I may be up, dig but, digressing. <laughs> but there's something related to that that I, I do want to just mention that I even think in design education is we look at these kind of like... I know you mentioned that you love the Paul Rand eras, and I'm about to argue with that a little bit. I, I also love him, but I think in like design history courses and mm -hmm. when, when graphic designers are an undergrad, kind of when they kind of learn about these kind of like touchstone designers, mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of based on style without any kind of context. Mm. And it 
I have no data to back this up. This is just a, a theory that I have that it kind of just like produces this kind of like regurgitation of styles mm. where like I think it's much more interesting to like look at what where that st style I'm using the word style um, came from and what came right before it and why is that a big deal compared to its context yeah and like we can only we shouldn't in design education we shouldn't be looking should we really be looking to Paul Rand still for this is how to make a perfect logo because he never had the internet and there were no iPhones and like a logo has a very different function yeah and so I almost think that there's also yes history has this like kind of series of like these big moments that it's a little more gradual but then it also um, you know like becomes this thing that you can just kind of like look back on without any yeah yeah no that's a good point and in a way I feel like I allow myself to like Paul Rand in a way I don't allow myself to still like Richard Meyer as much as I used to <laughs> yeah. because that's that's a field that I only dabble in rather right, than being right. embedded in. I mean, and this is a funny thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I do claim to be a design critic because I don't want to limit myself to just architecture. But, but lately, I've been doing more things that are just about architecture. When I used to have my Design Observer blog, you know, I had to write every week and I just picked things uh -huh. out of the air. And I think it gave, I had a little bit more freedom in terms yeah. of topics. And maybe after I get through my, you know, current state of work, I'll try to go back to that state of mind more. But I, I think that I feel freer to dabble and maybe some, say something oh, dumb yeah. in product design and graphic design because it's not, you know, I mean, I never had a class in either of those topics. <laughs> it's all from, it's yeah. all just self-knowledge. But I think it's that's a what would different. make it, yeah. could make it yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, I have a, just a couple quick questions. Sure. I'm curious, you had mentioned this to me in an email when we first started talking okay. about this, about um, how when you wrote writing about architecture, social, social media wasn't a thing. Oh, yeah. And so I was just curious, like, how has your active on, on all of those? And when I told Ellen that I was going to talk to you, yeah. the first thing she said was, I love her Instagram. Oh. <laughs> and so it's like, that's nice you know, that that's the thing that you're known for now. And I'm... I, how has that changed? Has that changed what you do or how you think about um, your work? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I think. Um, oh, maybe I should just try to monetize my Instagram <laughs> and stop writing, <laughs> because as discussed previously, you know, it feels like video and other kind of yeah. um, visual digital things are much more of a growth industry than print. And so it's hard for somebody that always wanted to be a writer to know, like, what her future holds. Um, no, I love, well, I love Twitter and I love Instagram. You know, I'm worried about Twitter now. But I think yeah, those, too. I think both of those platforms have helped me just immeasurably. I mean, as I said before, like, I, I don't have a real job, but I feel like they've just helped my profile and helped me to kind of be uh, in the mix yeah. with other critics who do have jobs. Oh, I interesting. Mean, yeah. And then I think they, um, Twitter really has increased my like, international reach. Like, you know, I, I got uh -huh. invited to New Zealand. I got invited to Australia. Oh, interesting. You know, people in, like, basically the PR people at yeah. most of the major um, 
European architects all know who I am. And that's, wow. you know, that's a little bit dizzying, but it's also Twitter. Yeah. So that's just incredibly helpful in terms of right. reach. Yeah. I mean, yeah. totally helpful. And then Instagram's been really fun because I actually, you know, I don't own a camera. It's all iPhone. And I never took pictures before my iPhone because my brother and his wife are oh, both right. yeah, trained yeah, yeah. photographers. And I just felt really weird about taking photos. I guess I was like, oh, they're not going to be good. Like, I'd be ashamed to show them right. to him. So I, sh I just won't do it. But then the iPhone just took away all that anxiety. And I really got into Instagram. Oh, actually, on my trip to Australia, because I was just seeing these things that were blowing my mind, and I just wanted to share. It was yeah. like a pure, yeah, yeah. like, oh my God, you guys right. have to see this. And I that, love that, like, that's the, yeah. that's what it should be like. Yeah. Well, that is, I mean, that's like, we didn't have time to talk about this, but I think it's fine. Was your uh, criticism equals love piece, which oh, I feel yeah. like I see linked around all the time. Like, people are always <laughs> talking about it, and I think, like, that's like the perfect kind of example yeah. of that too. I'm so glad to hear that because, well, I'm so glad to hear that because it's true. And I yeah. just, sometimes um, the design internet mm -hmm. yeah. is yeah. so relentlessly chipper and like, but also refusing to look at itself. And I feel like yeah. it's less than so much, but for a while there was all this talk about haters. And I'm like, gosh, people think I'm a hater. And that could just not be further from them too. I'm always like, well, if they met me, they'd see that I'm just like a very nice, normal person. So then they would understand. Right, right. But in the absence of that, like, you know, I just felt like I had to explain my position yeah. to people that seemed just not to be willing to understand that there are other ways to go about loving design. Did you did you read A.O. Scott's Better Living Through Criticism? I did. <laughs> I did not I, care for it. <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about it, but okay. that, the, the one thing that I, I really liked about it, and I'm, I'm going to try to talk to him. Oh, um, okay. The thing I liked is that he kind of like positioned criticism as this way to love more deeply the things that you love yeah um which i thought was was really cool yeah um no that's a good point i think for me i was like well you could also have written 800 words like i did and got it, that point across it anyway. there was definitely like an identity crisis of like what the book wanted to be yeah oh um, and i just wanted him to like talk about more current examples i mean oh yeah i that's feel true like too. okay maybe i don't quote poetry like um like herbert mushop but at least people can tell that like I'm living in this world. Yeah. And yeah. And like maybe those references yeah. mean my mom doesn't get it, but like, you know, it's like I do watch the Kardashians. So, you know, why not just admit that right. and wrap it up into right. some sort of commentary on um, home de yeah. design? Like what's wrong with yeah. that? That's that's our world. <laughs> I have two two final okay. questions that are I think are are pretty pretty <laughs> simple. Um, maybe this one isn't as simple what do you see we kind of like talked about like audience and, and things like that but what do you see as your role within the architecture community and for architects and practitioners and like what's that relationship like and how do you kind of contribute to that yeah that's I feel like that's actually an easier question and actually oh. um, in a way because so a 
couple years ago, I had this Loeb Fellowship at Harvard, yeah. and um, they have a very actually a very good application, like one that makes you think, and it's not too difficult. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it's not difficult in the sense of making you write endless repetitive essays, but makes you think. Um, and they asked sort of like, what is your effectiveness? You know, like, how have oh. you been effective? And I was That's like, oh, my God. Like, this is... Wow. Like, the, and it, like at first, I was like, this is a stake to my heart. Like, I've done nothing. Like, yeah. I have not saved Penn Station. Like, I'm probably never going to save Penn Station. And since, you know... That's what something my idols question. tried to do. Like, what, yeah. like, what am I doing? But then I was like, okay, maybe one day I'll be able to stop something terrible from happening. I try, but I feel like I have get to deliver yeah, a killer yeah. killer blow. But in the meantime, I do feel like I have been able to introduce kind of better topics of conversation within architecture. Mm. I mean, I oh. feel like, for example, I wrote I a, an article about um, women in architecture uh -huh. called Architecture's yeah. Lean-In Moment. Yep. And that was, I can't remember what year that was, but that was kind of early in the current discussion. Mm -hmm. And I just, I feel like I actually framed the issues that are still being right. played out as the issues. Right. So I'm like, okay, yes, I put my I finger on like what we need to talk about. And I feel like I have a few pieces like that. I mean, this is not architecture, but I wrote this piece about 3D printing and the sewing machine, okay. and I felt like, oh yes, I did put my finger on what was wrong with how we were talking about 3D printing. And just yeah. recently there was something about how like MakerBot is right. going out of business. I'm oh, like, they are? Well, no, or whatever, they're, uh, you know, they're pivoting. Whatever, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, you know, I don't know anything. Like, I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm not a tech journalist. I'm not a guy, but I think that I put my finger on like why their business model that. wasn't going to work. And I'm like, well, that is a service. I believe right. it is a service. Right. So, in the absence of stopping terrible buildings, I will take like improving the quality of conversation, like pointing people towards the thing that's really the issue. Yeah. And I do feel like sometimes I just have clarity for whatever yeah. reason about things like that just to to kind of like wrap it up i'm curious i don't know exactly kind of how to phrase this but i'm curious just like what your writing process is like <laughs> um you know do you write every day do you write at the same time do you have like uh. when you're working on a story or does it kind of change well my best case scenario is like i go to see something I let it percolate in my mind. Um, sometimes I, ha I always have a yellow pad by my computer and sometimes I'll basically like outline a piece on my yellow pad before I start writing in a way, like even like late at night. So it's like not like I'm working, but I'm starting, like sentences start to form yeah. in my head. This is when I have time to like, percolate. like sentences start to form in my head. I'm like, well, that's that sounds good. Like I better write that right. down. So I'll just sort of like scratch it out like on half a page. And then the next day I'll sit down and if it's like a good day, I'll just like write the thing that day and it's done. I mean, this is like a thousand word essay. So right. that is my best case scenario. That's when I feel free and good. Yeah. And yeah. like, I know what I want to say. I mean, other stories go in all sorts of other directions. Um, my, my schedule is kind of choppy. I will say weirdly, my prime writing hours are between about 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Like I usually oh, sit down okay. at my desk at nine waste like an hour looking at blogs <laughs> um do some email like i don't know like i used to beat myself up 
about this, but then one day my husband was like, well, maybe that's just your process. Yeah. Like, maybe you should stop beating yourself up about the time that you're wasting and just assume that's part of your process. And that was a great insight. Like, it's not like that's preventing you from publishing and, like, you're still getting all the work done. No, I, get, done. I yeah, get it so. done. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's just, like, that dumb feeling, like, like I love Tom and Lorenzo, the oh, yeah. fashion blog, so I look at that every morning. Oh, and I hate read a bunch of mom blogs, and just, this is all the embarrassing stuff. <laughs> and you I'll do all that you. first. Yeah. yeah, I do all that first. <laughs> I love that. Um, and then, I mean, like, my dream, like, I like, you know, the 1,200 word, well, 12 to 1,500 words is, is like, my natural okay. length. And if I have flow, like, I can write that in a day, and it's pretty good, and, like, that's great. That doesn't always happen. I mean, yeah. like, the New Yorker piece... How many, how long was that about? That ended up yeah. being 7,000 words. Okay. No. I always have six, a hard time. 6,000 words. It was very long. Like, yeah. to me, it seemed endless because yeah. I usually write a third of that. Right. So, <laughs> it seemed endless. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, I worked for a couple of months on it. I felt like I got to, you know, I did interviews, I did site visits, whatever, and I got to this place where I felt like I was asking people questions for the sake of asking them, but yeah. they weren't saying anything new, and then I was like, okay, I'm ready to write a draft. So I wrote a draft, and then my editor read it, and he gave me, like, three pages of things that were wrong with it, <laughs> and I went through, I actually, this was actually a good exercise, so that draft was maybe like 5,000 words, and he gave me this two-page list of all the things that were wrong with it, and I cut and pasted his critique into the draft, like where uh, he was talking about it, because he hadn't done it in track changes, it was uh, separate. Yeah. So I cut and pasted the criticism into that section of the story, so that then I could go through and kind of like deal with each one, one by yeah, one, yeah. because otherwise it was just such a huge document. So I was like, okay, today I will deal with three problems, and then the next day I'll deal with three more problems. Right. until they're fixed That's interesting. and maybe yeah. the fix is i have to have another two-hour phone call with my subject maybe the fix is i have to wait to go and visit governor's island with some kids maybe, you know all the maybe the fix is just like going through my transcripts and being like oh i didn't think that was important but the editor wants to hear more about it so i'll stick that in yeah i mean that's how it works so so that's i don't know if that really answers your question but yeah, yeah. I really, I mean, I like to write without notes, but then if it's a more research-heavy piece, I'll kind of do a draft with just like a bunch of TKs oh, yeah. and like go back and fill this in, and right. then I'll go back and fill in like the what I call the facts. Right. But I like to write the color first. Oh, and you almost like kind of flesh it out, kind of like get up, get it all there, and then you drop in the, the stuff that the, I have yeah. to look up because I don't like stopping to look things up. Yeah. So it's like I get the structure and kind of my argument down, and yeah. then I go back, and I know I usually know, like, okay, I have to look in this book for, I know there's a quote about right. Ray Eames in this book, so I'll go back and look up the exact that's quote. Interesting. So yeah. that's sort of how I do it. I just wrote something about Ray Eames, which is why I thought. Oh, I yeah. like, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I like that. Um, well, they, that's if you just, like, yeah. want your, yeah. you have to spit your idea out, and if you spend too much energy on getting everything right the first time yeah. your your idea is going to get clogged that's that's my problem and i definitely like would not call myself a writer i'm like trying to become a writer i think and trying to like get better at it. but i have this problem where like i really struggle to sit down if i don't know what the first if i don't have a first sentence oh. 
Um, like well, I, that is the hardest part. Yeah. See, sometimes do they ever appear in your head? Like sometimes yeah. they yeah. appear in my head. Yeah, like I'll be on the subway or riding the bus or walking and all of a sudden it's like, and I'll know it word for word exactly. And then I sit down and I type that and then I can like do the rest. But I often struggle to even like sit down until I have that, which is a problem. Well, but I mean, that, that's like when I'm talking about having flow, that's what it is. Like your head is writing it before you sit down. Yeah. And that is the dream state. But yeah, sometimes you just have to write things when you're not in that state. I have one more. I'm, I know I said the last question was the last question. This should be a, a very quick question. About how many pieces do you think you publish a month? Oh. And are you kind of exclusively curbed? Um, I publish about three pieces a month, which I know because I have a monthly newsletter. Oh, and, yeah. And at the top of it, I put in yeah. what I publish, and generally it's three pieces. And I know I feel badly if I only pe- publish two, which is just crazy, and I need to stop being like that because that... Um, that self-competitive right. thing yeah. is yeah. actually going to drive me nuts. But anyway, um, I, I am contracted to write two pieces for Curbed a month. Like, they pay me okay. a set amount, and I'm supposed to write two pieces for that amount. So that is actually a steady income, which is great. And then I usually write one to two others that are okay. freelance that come up. I mean, you know, people ask yeah. me to do things, or I have ideas that won't work for Curbed, or... Oh, okay. Like, I'm just thinking of this month, what I published, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I try my best to read everything that you published. <laughs> and so, like, this was well, you're really, doing better than anyone really else great that, oh. that, that, like, I could talk to you and we could do this. And so, I, I really appreciate it. Okay. No, was it was interesting. I hope that I was helpful. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it was great. Thank you so much. Sure. This episode was recorded on June 24th, 2016 in Brooklyn, New York. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.